morning, friends. Children, you can be dismissed at this time to go to Children's Church. I'm sure that you're aware of this, but uh, identity theft is on the rise in our country, I think, and around the world. People pretend to be someone they're not for unearned gain. They assume someone else's identity, as you know, so they can forge checks, uh, use credit cards that don't belong to them, create false accounts, benefit from something that they haven't worked for, and maybe even avoid consequences that they actually deserve. Uh, from time to time, we hear about uh, people, even in politics recently, um, creating false resumes to gain an advantage for some job they're looking for. Happens in politics, happens in, I think, every arena. Uh, we hear of others selling fake works of art, um, counterfeiting paper money, selling knockoff products and so forth, deceiving people. Everything, it seems, needs to have authenticity checks. Um, is this an authentic thing that I'm hearing or seeing? Um, we hear of, of the need for this all around us all the time, from political candidates' credentials all the way to the $20 bills we use every day. Is this authentic? They get out their little pen and mark it. Well, that's a, tr that's a real $20 bill. We see that kind of thing regularly. Accessing our own online banking requires all sorts of passwords and security questions. And they do this to protect and confirm our identity. Uh, we may tire of all this that's required of us, but I think we all understand the need for them, these security measures. Interestingly to me, <clears throat> something of utmost value and importance gets little attention in our society. There is something I think that's infinitely more valuable than our bank accounts or investment accounts or even our personal identities, and yet it gets very little attention. If we go to such great lengths to protect and verify our money, to verify our possessions, verify even our identity, you would think that we would have an interest in protecting and verifying the condition of our soul. Shouldn't it be important to us to evaluate and examine the eternal condition of our own souls, I would ask? Wouldn't it be a good idea to confirm the validity of the faith we claim? Do you want to know whether or not your faith is authentic or counterfeit? I certainly do. That's something I'm very interested in. Well, today marks the first day in our new sermon series on the eminently practical book of James that you just heard the first chapter read from. In this wonderful little book, five chapters in all, uh, we're going to come face to face with our true spiritual identity. We'll be able to, to tell whether or not we truly know God, whether or not we have a relationship with Jesus Christ personally. Um, we're going to learn from this sacred but very simple text uh, what is real and what isn't as it relates to our faith. This is the reason that this book was written. Uh, today, so I'm, going to, I'm just going to begin today by giving you a brief introduction to this, and then in uh, weeks to come, we're going to dissect this down tooth and nail all the way to get to the nitty-gritty of this important text. I hope you'll uh, make being here a priority. 
The way I want to begin is by, by having you look at the occasion of the letter. Why was this written? What motivated the author, James, to write this letter? Why is it important to you and to me? I mean, it is ancient, after all, 2,000-some uh, years old. Why does it matter that we actually read this book? Why did it matter even to the first century people who received it? Well, by examining our lives, we can discover whether or not we are living in God's way or the world's way, whether or not our faith is authentic or inauthentic, uh, fraudulent. We know that the enemy of every Christian, who is Satan, would love to have us ignore this kind of conversation. Uh, he, he would rather that we not verify the authenticity of our faith. He would rather that you, you miss church more often than normal, especially during this important series in James, because he doesn't want you grappling with the critically important reality of the authenticity of your faith. Just ignore it. Forget it. Deal with it later. Would be Satan's um, wish. And we know this is how he feels and thinks because this is what it says in Scripture about him. Listen to these, for example, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds. Who's, who's the God of this world? It's Satan. The God, small g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what James is going to do is going to help take the blinders off so we can see actually what is real and what is not as it relates to our faith or lack thereof. In the same book, Paul writes in chapter 11, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan wants you to think things about him and the things that he promotes as light, as good, as, you know, beneficial. Look at the second half of this verse, verse 15. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Who might these be? Satan's servants who look like servants of righteousness, but Paul's saying they're not. He, in fact, says their end will correspond to their deeds. So Satan would do, will do everything he can to keep you from doing business with God. This has always been his strategy. From day one in the Garden of Eden, he would rather th have you think differently about yourself and about your relationship with God than what is actually true about that. He will distract you. He'll deceive you. He'll mislead you. And many times, sadly, he will do this through pastors and teachers and well-known authors. Satan will do anything to keep us from boring down into the depths of our souls to examine the authenticity of our relationship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. Don't think about it. It's simply Satan's plan. He uses your spiritual apathy or your lack of doctrinal clarity to make you susceptible to false teaching. He'll nudge you to find a church that doesn't focus on holiness, that doesn't focus on a necessary hot pursuit of God. And you can find a church, of course, that will teach whatever you want to hear. You can find teachers that will frame the teachings of Scripture in whatever way that will make you comfortable, and authors that will do the same, best-selling authors that will soothe your soul when you 
when you read their material to help you think that everything is okay, in fact, lovely if you'll just smile, instead of receiving from God a penetrating view of the Holy Spirit into your life. And there are passages all over Scripture that deal with this, but particularly in the New Testament, Peter and 2 Peter and Jude and some of Paul's writings warn against accepting those who will twist and dilute the Scriptures to satisfy their audiences, to keep their audiences. James, on the other hand, wants to make sure his readers aren't deceived into false sense of comfortable assurance with a pseudo-faith, no less. He doesn't want his flock to be rocked to spiritual sleep by spiritual apathy or the cunning and crafty teachers that abound who have a selfish agenda, really not caring for the flock that sits underneath their teaching, but more concerned about their own comfortable lifestyle. You see, James is committed to ensuring that his readers think deeply and practically about the ramifications of calling oneself a Christian, professing Christ. God has given a clear picture in the Bible of what it means to be a saved person, what it means to have a relationship with God, what it means to have your sins forgiven. The Bible is not unclear about this. Jesus himself was very concerned about this the true spiritual condition of his followers, of his followers. And in his very first sermon, he taught about this. So evidently it was on his mind as he entered ministry in Matthew 7, which was the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount. He had just listed uh, and taught on these many different uh, values of authentic Christianity. He concludes his sermon with this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? These are all people who spent all their time in church, who read all the books, who went to all the seminars. Lord, we... We sat under the ministry of so-and-so. We had to, I was a member. I, I worked in the nursery. God, don't you remember me? And look at Jesus' response. These are Jesus' words. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. Jesus was concerned with the authenticity of the faith of those who follow him. And this seems to be a recurring theme in God's mind throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament. Look at what David says in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. I don't want to be fake, David said. He says, try me, know my thoughts. David knew that he could deceive himself. And so he said, God, please, with your penetrating gaze, expose me. He says, see if there be an grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David was interested in an authentic relationship with God. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3.40, he says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Psalm 119 that we happen to be familiar with says, 
When I think about my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Just do a little thinking about your life, the psalmist says. And then when we get to the New Testament, by the way, there's more, much more in the Old Testament, but we are limited in time. Matthew 3, John the Baptist says to the, to the Pharisees that are listening to him, why don't you guys bear fruit in keeping with repentance? You say you love God, you say you follow him, you say you've turned from your ways. Let's see it in the fruit of your life. And then Paul again in 2 Corinthians 13, he tells his readers, examine yourselves to see whether or not your faith is real. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. See, how are we today, we don't have any apostles running around. How are we today supposed to examine ourselves and test ourselves? Well, the letter of James is designed for that very thing. This is a mirror that we are to look into to see what is real and what is not, to see the flaws in our faith. And by God's grace, pursue Christ in an authentic fashion. So Jesus' first sermon addressed this issue. The first book of the New Testament is themed with this issue, this issue which is James, which was written 45 A.D., about 10 or 12 years after Jesus' ascension. This book was written. First book written, first sermon preached, is about the authenticity of people's faith. Do you think God cares about this? Very much. Very much. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul wrote, but let each, each one test his own work. In Acts 26, 20, it says they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. There ought to be something that is a result of genuine faith, a result of genuine repentance. Something must be seen. It's all over the scriptures. The necessary result of true saving faith, according to scripture, according to James particularly, is good works. If God has given a new heart and given spiritual life to a dead soul, it will always result in change at every level of that experience. The, the, the most important and well-known, even controversial contribution of this book that we're studying now, James, is the teaching about the importance of works in justification, which we kind of cringe at, don't we? Those of us who believe in salvation by faith alone. Well, James condemns in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, James condemns any form of Christianity that drifts into a sterile, actionless orthodoxy. He teaches that authentic Christianity is a faith that works. Knowing God results, James says, in loving your neighbor. Pure and true and undefiled religion, James says, will manifest, self, manifest itself in concern for the helpless in our society. It will, it will manifest itself in a meek and unselfish attitude towards those around us. It will renounce discrimination in our culture. It will not speak evil of others. James says, true faith actually works, is evident. But 
Faith, we know, because we know the word of God, not works is fundamental in establishing a relationship with God, right? We know that we can't work our way into God's good graces. We know that the Bible teaches it's not by works, but by faith through grace that you're saved, or by grace through faith. But genuine faith, James insists, must have content. Otherwise, it's not genuine. You can say whatever you want as long as you want, but unless there is evidence, it is pseudo-faith, false faith. So if you were brought to court on the charges of being a lover of God, could anybody prove it in a court of law with evidence? What in your life demonstrates a love for God is James' question. If there is one thing that we cannot afford to get wrong, it is the genuineness of our relationship with God. The Apostle John in 1 John also makes it abundantly clear that saving faith goes beyond verbal, verbal profession. Jesus said this. James said this. John said this. Peter said this. Paul said this. The same thing. It doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth. What matters is the work. Does your faith actually work? Is there evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Can you think of a more important question to those of us who claim Jesus as our Savior? I can't. <laughs> is it real is the answer or the question that we need to hunt for the answer to. You see, our, our faith must include obedience to God. It must include living righteously and separate from the world. It must include loving fellowship with other believers. James goes through the list point by point by point for five chapters. I decided to teach this important little book because as your pastor, I don't want anybody here going blindly through life, thinking all is well with God, when in fact it may not be. I don't want anyone here, either knowingly or unknowingly, playing church, playing religion. I can't imagine a worse fate than hearing Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. But, 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 who are you? No way. I, I, I can't imagine that. You see, Jesus was very concerned with this. The New Testament writers were very concerned. Jesus' teaching was gathered up by his apostles and taught to the people that followed Jesus. James' teaching mirrors Jesus' teaching, particularly Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins his sermon by describing the heart attitudes of genuine believers in the Beatitudes. You've heard of those. Matthew 5. Those attitudes include humility, dependence, mercy, joy, longing for God, an interest in pursuing God. The same kind of attitudes that we see James describing. Jesus' sermon continues for two chapters after the Beatitudes, and in it he identifies those things that mark a genuinely saved person. 
Many commentators believe that this book, James, was working off of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he wrote this letter, working through it point by point. The parallels are remarkable. And because of the nature of the book of James, it hasn't had an easy path to canonicity, as you can imagine. It took a while for this book to be included in the, what we call the Bible. And of course, you know, there have been a few famous theologians who have had less than good opinions of this book. Martin Luther, for example, if you heard of him, um, famously called James an epistle of straw, even though he eventually acknowledged its place in the canon. This is the book we're going to be studying for the next few months. I'm excited about it. So who is James? Which James are we talking about? There's at least four in the New Testament. Which one penned this letter? And does it matter? Well, I think there's only two legitimate uh, alternatives or possibilities of the four James that we know of that could have written this. Because the James that, that wrote this particular letter needed to be prominent enough to have the authority that would be received from the original recipients. There needed to be a, a famous James, as it were, to write this letter, authoritative enough to be received humbly. If Bob would have written this letter, it wouldn't be in the canon. James wrote the letter. The question is, which James? And it's important that we get to the bottom of that question. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John the Apostle, is one legitimate option. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the other legitimate option. But we know that James, the brother of John, was martyred very early in church history. In fact, so early that he couldn't have been the author. He could have, I mean, had the authority, people would have received it because the apostle James wrote this letter. We ought to listen. But that guy, James, the brother of John, died by way of martyrdom. In Acts 12, we read of his, his death. This leaves us only with James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the most likely author. James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the author of this letter, now is fairly widely accepted as the author of this book. James, the half-brother of Jesus, not the apostle James, not the father James, not the son of Alphaeus James, James, the half-brother of Jesus. There are a few things that I want to say about this James that might help you a little bit understand the importance of this book. Contrary to Catholic teaching, Jesus actually had brothers and sisters. Jesus was the firstborn by necessity because Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus and remained so until after Jesus was born. We read of that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, we read that Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. Why would Luke designate that title, firstborn son? if there weren't others. In Matthew chapter 12, Mark 3, Luke 8, and John 2, we actually read of a list of Jesus' siblings, including James. Matthew 13, 55, for example, says this, is not this the carpenter's son? This is the crowd saying, why should we listen to Jesus? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not, <clears throat> are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? 
These are these guys we know. James, we know him. He's Jesus' brother. Paul also names this James, Jesus' brother. In Galatians 1, verse 19, it says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So the early church knew who this was. This was James, Jesus' half-brother. Half because Jesus' father was God, not Joseph. Well, let's think about the conversion of Jesus' brother, James. <laughs> It's quite surprising to me that even though uh, Jesus' siblings grew up with him, observing his perfection, did not believe on him. I suppose we could, you know, explain that in some way by sibling rivalry or something. But his siblings didn't believe in Jesus' claim to messiahship, claim to deity. Said this in John 7, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, including James, said to him, leave here, and they were in Galilee in their hometown, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples, it's almost a mocking instruction, that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. You call yourself the Messiah, go do your stuff down to Jerusalem is what James was saying to Jesus in John 7. And it says at the end of that verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. They grew up with this perfect human being and they couldn't believe in him. According to Mark 3.21, their unbelief was so entrenched that they thought he was actually insane. It, was like, it went like this, oh no, Jesus has just claimed to be God. Can you believe that? Let's go get him. You know, crazy older brother Jesus is kind of how they thought of him. And they actually went to go get him because they thought he was insane. Mark 3. Have you ever heard of the different accounts of Jesus' childhood in these lost gospels? You ever heard of those things like the Gospel of Thomas? Well, there's a few of these lost gospels out there that the world likes to make mention of. Some of these apocryphal accounts record Jesus making birds out of clay and then letting them fly out of his hands, of helping his dad in the carpentry shop, extending the lumber so he'd have enough wood to finish the project, all these stories that we read of. Um, what do you think of those stories? Did Jesus perform miracles as a child? You might say, I don't know, maybe. Well, we do know. <laughs> his siblings didn't believe in him. If he were making bird, clay birds fly, they might think twice about his brother. This, well, maybe he, I don't know. If he's making wood grow out of nothing, if he's turning the sun back, which some of them say a couple hours so that he could stay up longer, he might think about that. Maybe this guy's more than my brother. <laughs> Dad, Mom, where did Jesus come from? But none of these questions come up. Why? Because he didn't do miracles as a child. How do we know that? John, you're just talking out of the side of your mouth. No, I'm not. It says in John chapter 2, in his 
visit to the wedding in Cana, this was his first miracle. <laughs> he didn't do miracles as a kid. And hence, his own siblings didn't believe him. They just thought he was crazy. So what is remarkable to me also is that James and his other full siblings, James's full siblings, didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. Now, what happened here? It says this in Acts 1. Listen to this. Think of the context. Acts 1, 13 and 14. And when they had entered, that is, entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, not James the brother of Jesus, James the brother of John, John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, not the brother of Jesus, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, not the brother of Jesus, the father of Judas. All these apostles, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together. Now listen, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In Acts 1, James was there. He was a believer by the time we get to Acts 1. What had happened? Listen closely. Resurrection happened. <laughs> I saw Jesus die, and now he's alive. Okay, I'm convinced. It took the miracle of resurrection to convince James that Jesus was God and deserved his worship and his service. We see Paul describing this phenomenal transformation in James in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, then Jesus appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles. So James had seen Jesus die on the cross then he received a personal visit and private visit from Jesus a few days later. That would convince me if I were James. When the church was born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, James was there as a believer. Now let's look at his leadership. James was converted, as I just mentioned, James believed that his older brother was actually God. Try to come to grips with that concept. He was actually Lord. He was Christ. My older brother is the Messiah. Wow. <laughs> Fast forward a few years, we learned that James had become a key leader in the Jerusalem church. Paul calls James, the brother of Jesus, a pillar in the church, along with Peter and John, the primary apostles. So James had risen in stature amongst the believers as a pillar of the Jerusalem church along with Peter, none other than Peter, and John the apostles. We see this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. In essence, James had become the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. He was a very godly and zealous leader and soon became the head of the Jerusalem church, Acts 12 and Galatians 2. By the time we get to Acts 15, so 
time had elapsed, martyrs had died, the church had grown. Acts 15 comes along. James was the leader of the church, and he presided personally over the famous council in Jerusalem. When they were deciding, what was it that made up saving faith? Did people need to follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved? And James, with the apostles, gathered and discussed it. And James, in, in uh, Acts 15, announces to the church in Jerusalem, this is what we, the apostles, have decided. Faith comes, I mean, salvation comes by faith alone, apart from works. James said that, and then he writes this book. Okay, you're with me, right? We, we know that James was not one of the original apostles. He didn't believe. But interestingly, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul calls James an apostle. Towards the end of Paul's missionary excursions and career, he returned to Jerusalem one last time, met with James to report to the authority in Jerusalem on his missionary excursions. He came to report to James what his missionary efforts had accomplished. James was a key guy in the early church. Let's look at that. Let's look at the beginning. If you have your Bible, open it to James 1. That was a long introduction, I'm sorry. But this is an introduction to the book, so give me some grace. Let's look at James chapter 1, verse 1. And this is all we'll cover today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let me... Let me talk to you about three things that this introduction reveals about James and maybe give you some interest and motivation in listening to the rest of what he has to say. First of all, can you see the humility required to write what he wrote? James, servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say James, the brother of Jesus and son of Mary. Could have. He didn't. This man was full of humility. Maybe he listened to the Sermon on the Mount and applied its truth. Though James placed no weight on his relationship to the royal family. His authority didn't depend on his physical relationship with Jesus, but on his spiritual relationship with Jesus. James, a servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does James describe himself here? As a servant. It's the Greek word doulos, which is literally slave. You see, servants can come and go at their pleasure, right? They'd actually get paid for being a servant, not slaves. Slaves are under the ultimate authority of the slave owner. James calls himself a slave. He, he was completely dependent on someone else, his owner, for food, for clothing, for supply, for direction. James, slave of God and my brother, Jesus. 
He was humbled and honored to follow and obey Jesus, his older brother, as Lord and God. Humility. What else do we see that might encourage you to continue to listen? Look at the commitment that he displays. His commitment not only to God, but to sound doctrine is very clear in this greeting. His greeting indicates that he had two masters, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The very thing that Jesus said you can't have. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. And here we have James saying, I have two masters, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on here? Well, see, James understood what Philip in John 10 couldn't understand. James understood that what Jesus said when he said, I and my father are one. James understood that Jesus, his older brother that he grew up with, was on par, was equal to and with in harmony with the God of the universe. He understood that Jesus was God. James understood he was committed to sound doctrine that taught the, the equality of the Trinity, that taught, that, that taught the, the uh, creation power in the hands of Jesus, his older brother. Imagine, you're his younger brother, and you're to the point where you're saying, my brother is God, he created me. He controls my life and my future. My brother, the one I grew up with, this is who I bow to. This is who I serve. Wow. According to Josephus, we see a further act of commitment. In 62 AD, Josephus, by the way, was a non-believing historian, Jewish historian. And in 62 AD, Josephus tells us that that. James cemented his commitment to the Lord and to his church um, by dying as a martyr, by being thrown from the temple roof to the temple plaza. And since the fall didn't kill him, they beat him to death with clubs. This is what Josephus said, how he died. All he had to do was say, okay, Jesus isn't God. <laughs> My brother isn't God. They wouldn't have thrown him off the roof. But he wouldn't do it. He was not only committed to God, he was committed to his church who followed God and Jesus Christ. Then we see here also in this greeting, verse 1, love. Love for the recipients of this letter. Love for the dispersion, as you can see, he calls them. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Who were the dispersion? Well, the dispersion were Jews who had been dispersed outside of Israel as a result of the persecution that was taking place in Jerusalem on all Jesus followers. There was a great persecution that took place early on, and a lot of the Jewish Christians who had come to faith on the day of Pentecost exited the country. They didn't want to die in the persecution like they had seen others die. So they ran. This group, this dispersion, 
was also made up of people who never returned from the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity. They remained Jews in those countries, but returned annually to the feast when they were allowed to by their captors. And you know, one of the feasts that all Jews returned to was the Feast of Pentecost. And of course, we know what happened at the day of Pentecost. Peter gets up in Acts 2 and preaches an amazing sermon. And 3,000 at his first sermon came to Jesus and believed that he was Lord and Savior and God of the universe. These were the ones James was writing to. These are the ones that James had pastored, had loved, had discipled. He cared for their souls deeply. He loved them. And he wanted to make sure that they were doing business with God and not believing the lies of the enemy. Not saying it really doesn't matter. Not saying, oh, you know, I think I'm a Christian, that's good enough. Jesus, James was saying, no. You need to know. You need to wrestle with these things. Look what he says there at the end in verse 1, the last word in our translation that says, greetings. Greetings. This word actually in the original language means rejoice or be glad. It was a common greeting in James's day, but it means what it, what it says. It means rejoice and be glad. James desired that his dispersed flock was glad in God, that, that they would rejoice in identifying the true, authentic reality of their relationship with God. And this is what I want for Sun Valley Church. This is why I've chosen to preach and teach this book. I want you to hear these sermons on the identifying marks of genuine and authentic faith and say, ah, ah, I know that I know Jesus. I see the signs of the Holy Spirit in my own life. Joy and gladness that brings. Or maybe, on the other hand, you may hear these sermons and say, oh my, I don't think I really know Jesus. And in that discovery, you will humbly come to the Savior of your soul, Jesus Christ, and actually, truly, authentically come by faith to Jesus and be saved, which will produce gladness and joy. So either way, whether your faith is affirmed as authentic or whether it's exposed as false, you will have reason to rejoice, right? I am in Christ or, oh, no, I'm not. Jesus, save me. Both are reasons to rejoice. This is why we've entered this new book. I hope you'll be here regularly. It's going to be a great adventure. I'm not sure when it'll end, but it's going to be a good one. So... Come back week after week. Let's pray. Father, we are excited to enter this new and small yet profound book, practical book that reveals to us the true nature of our faith. God, I would ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in the lives of the people at Sun Valley as a result of uh, studying and hearing this 
this book preached. I pray that your spirit would be present and evident as we work our way through all these different evidences of faith, uh, all these different ways to think about the authenticity or lack thereof of our belief in Jesus. God, use these inspired words from uh, the half-brother of your son, Jesus Christ, James, to make a lasting impact on our souls and on our daily lives. Bless this church, Sun Valley Church, God, for these purposes, for your glory, for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name.